fixing the Arecibo Observatory, and reining in the hype of near-Earth asteroids. You're listening to Are We There Yet?, the radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. It's been more than a month since an asteroid-hunting telescope in Puerto Rico has gone dark. The Arecibo Observatory's dish is broken after a piece of scaffolding fell, damaging the 1,200-foot-wide surface. So what will it take to fix it? We'll speak with Observatory Director Francisco Cordova about the efforts to bring Arecibo back online. Then, an asteroid is heading our way, right on Election Day. Does the cosmic flyby pose any risk to us here on Earth? We'll speak with our science experts on this week's I'd Like to Know segment about the possible flyby and the sensational headlines that get us all looking towards the sky. That's ahead, but first let's take a look at the latest space news stories making headlines. Scientists have discovered phosphine gas in the atmosphere of Venus, a possible hint of life in the clouds of one of our closest planetary neighbors. The findings were released this week in the journal Nature Astronomy. Researchers used radio telescopes to identify a noxious gas called phosphine. On Earth, this gas is formed from the breakdown of organic material and is associated with life. It's found at the bottom of ponds and in penguin poop, among other places. The researchers say they can't come up with a non-biological way for the gas to form, but say while the results are tantalizing, it's not confirmation that there is actually life on Venus. Astrobiologists instead are calling for further studies of the findings, including a possible probe to the planet to search the atmosphere for more evidence. NASA is considering a spacecraft mission to Venus as a part of a future solar system exploration campaign. We'll take a deeper dive into these findings next week, so stay tuned or look out for the new show in your podcast app. Until then, you can find more space news stories online. Visit wmfe.org space or give me a follow on Twitter. I'm at SpaceBrendan. It's been almost a month since a snapped cable damaged the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico. Work continues to diagnose the cause and bring the dish back online. After a cable snapped last month, a metal platform crashed into the dish, leaving a 100-foot gash on the nearly 1,200-foot-wide reflector. Arecibo helps scientists spot potentially harmful asteroids that could impact Earth. And its radio telescope also helps astronomers look for fast radio bursts, exoplanets, signs of life in the universe, and other cosmic phenomena. Leading the effort to figure out what went wrong and fix the damage is Francisco Cordova, Arecibo's director, and he joins us now to bring us up to speed on these efforts. Francisco, thanks for speaking with us. Yeah, absolutely. Again, thanks for having me here. So, Francisco, what do we know so far? Um, What happened to the dish? Sure. So, um, you know, about, I want to say about a month ago, a little bit over a month ago now, we had a failure of one of the auxiliary cables. Um, These cables were installed in the 1990s as part of the Gregorian update of the facility. So the Gregorian is that golf ball looking thing uh, you see up in the platform of the observatory. Um, and, and it actually houses all of our receivers. You know, it has this, all, all the high value electronic equipment is there. Uh, so, you know, all the receivers and the S band radar as well. And so, um, you know, we lost one of those cables and, and the problem is, you know, it was a a very unexpected failure. Um, the way that it failed where it, it sort of pulled out of its socket, 
um, is very uh, unusual uh, to, for that to happen. And, and so we've, you know, first thing we did was really get get our hands uh, around groups of folks that have that experience in bridge building, that have experience in suspension cables. Um, so we probably talked, uh, you know, to three over over three dozen, probably over forty different uh, engineering consultants, uh, construction firms, forensics firms, structural analysts, um, and now we have, you know, I, I think we have a, a world class repair team on board that is really helping us kind of understand the situation a little bit better. And so, um, you know, when, when the failure happened, we did that, you know, the cable fell down and impacted the primary reflector. So we got about 300 to 350 panels from the primary reflector that are damaged. Uh, we also received some damage to part of the exterior panels of that Gregorian dome, uh, and then had several other things damaged, uh, including the HF uh, mesh, uh, we have some of the Heliox lines for the uh, high frequency transmitters that sit actually underneath the primary reflector uh, were also damaged. Um, and so, and honestly, we haven't really had the opportunity to fully inspect, I think, for, for all of the damage. Uh, part of that is, you know, we want to make sure that we know that we can prove that the, the structure is safe. Um, and a lot of our time has been spent, uh, you know, developing structural analysis models to understand the behavior of the platform right now and whether it is in a safe condition for us to, to go and access and work in and around it. And so um, that structural model is, is almost complete. I think uh, we should really have it uh, ready to go here in about a day or so. Uh, so we're really excited to see, uh, see that. And that really will allow us to, you know, prove, hey, this is this is safe for us to begin working in and around it. One of our next steps uh, right after we, we do that is really to begin uh, retrieving some of the failed hardware so that we can have it analyzed, uh, you know, do a full forensic analysis on it as to why it actually failed. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of theories about why it failed, uh, but until we get some some lab results, right, uh, we won't really know for sure. So, so that's really our priority, you know, to find a way to, to retrieve the failed hardware so that we can get it analyzed. Uh, you know, certainly safety is number one for us, and we're not going to do anything that puts, uh, you know, either our staff or any of our contractors at, at risk, right? You know, and, that, and that's why we hired, again, some, I think some of the top firms in the world that do this type of work. Mm -hmm. it, it's kind of like a, a two-parter, right? You've got the damage that was done to the dish surface itself, but there's the, um, you know, the root cause of what caused this, the suspension to fail, causing the damage to begin with, right? So not only do you have to repair the, the, sure. the tiles of the dish, but you have to figure out what happened on top, right? Am I understanding this correctly? Yeah, that is, that is correct, right? Because, I mean, when you have a failure like this, the first thing you want to try to understand is, you know, are you going to have other failures like that, right? <laughs> um, you know, why did that fail? Is, are, are other cables at risk of having the same problem? And so that's that's really the focus right now, um, you know, more than, more than immediately repairing the primary reflector, right? It's really making sure that the structure itself is in a stable position, that it is safe, um, and once we can determine that and say, okay, we understand why this failed, you know, we understand it was, you know, either a, an incident that we can just pinpoint it was, it was just to the one cable or whether we say, okay, hey, you know, now we understand what caused the failure and we're, we might need to change a, a few cables. We don't know. Then at least, you know, at least we have information to make decisions moving forward. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that there is some kind of computer modeling happening um, that, that you expect to finish up this week. Um, what kind of modeling is that and, and what's its purpose? 
Sure. So it, it's just it's a structural analysis model. And uh, the idea for that is to first understand what happened to the structure once this cable broke, right? So certainly, you know, you have uh, the platform shifted, right? Because it's got, you know, less less load holding it on, on one of the ends of the platform. And so it shifted, right? We wanted to understand, you know, are, are, are the capacities and all the structural elements in that platform good enough, right? Or do we feel that they may, may have suffered some damage? How were the loads redistributed, right? And on the other cables. Um, and so that we can understand, hey, what were to happen if another cable fails, you know? And, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and that's what's giving us, you know, I think a really good feel for, hey, you know, this is a very robust structure. You know, we understand we had that one failure, but certainly that the way that loads are, are, have been redistributed on the remaining cables, you know, doesn't put anything at risk. Um, and now we can begin, you know, focusing a little bit more on the recovery efforts. And, you know, this, this takes a lot of time. There, there, there had never been, I think, a, uh, such a detailed structural model built for the facility. Certainly, you don't build an analysis model like this, you know, assuming failures, right? You always build your baseline and you have your safety factors and things like that. But we really wanted to understand, you know, where did the structure move and how the loads were redistributed um, when when that cable uh, failed. You, you mentioned it's a robust structure, and I'm thinking back to, you know, some of the things that it has gone through, like Hurricane Maria. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, do you have some data from from how it, it fared through those natural disasters that are kind of playing into how you're tackling understanding this problem? Sure. So, I mean, I think all of those things are, you know, on the table, right, are being considered as, as potential causes. I, I think in particular, you know, the last three years, four years has been, have been difficult in general, right? You had Hurricane Irma, you had Hurricane Maria a week after that. This year, we've had unprecedented seismic activity in Puerto Rico, um, you know, to the point that we've had literally thousands of quakes since since uh, January uh, up until today, we still we still feel them. And so I think there are a lot of external factors, you know, that 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 may have potentially impacted the uh, uh, the structural integrity of, of those cables. Now, we we just don't know um, yet. Uh, we will know, I think, once we get into the forensics uh, side of things. And that's, again, you know, why we have a group of experts that focuses on doing forensic analysis for, for exactly this sort of failure, you know, either bridge failures uh, or other uh, complex structure failures uh, so that they can help us understand a little bit better the, the root costs. Francisco, this might be a little premature to answer, but do we know what the repairs will entail? How long will they take? How much will they cost? Is there the possibility that this observatory might not come back online? Yeah, I, I really don't don't think at all that that is going to be the case, right? I think, uh, you know, throughout the years, the URC Observatory has proven itself to be uh, one of the most important uh, research facilities in the world in the areas of radio astronomy and space and atmospheric sciences and planetary sciences. And I mean, there's just, there's no other place like Arecibo, you can't you can't do the things that we do at Arecibo anywhere else. Um, and so, you know, I think the the the, the question of you know is 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 Arecibo not coming back? I, I I just I can't I can't think through a scenario where that would happen, right? I think uh, you know we're gonna find a way to go get this fixed and, and reestablish operational capability as soon as possible. 
Uh, same way we've bounced back again from very many other issues like Hurricane Maria a couple of years ago. Now, as you talk about what do the repairs entail and what are the timelines for those? Uh, well, certainly we, we have to put up a new cable, right? And, and so that's, you know, an obvious thing. We have to go, you know, uh, restore that one cable. Uh, certainly we have to fix the uh, primary reflector. We have to fix the HF mesh. We have to fix uh, the Gregorian dome. Um, and, and, and so all of those things, you know, have to be done, not necessarily all at the same time, um, but they, they need to be done. Now, I think the, the, the cable is certainly our priority and it's our focus. Again, understanding why that failed, making sure that no other cable has, you know, a potential uh, for, for, for that type of damage. So, you know, we're still understanding, trying to understand the scope of the problem. Uh, and once I think we understand that scope of the problem, we can put together, you know, much more solid cost estimates and schedule estimates uh, as to when we're going to be back online. But, you know, our, our commitment, you know, from a UCF perspective is to get this thing back up and running as soon as we possibly can. We will want the observatory uh, running, you know, as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. Is this an opportunity to add um, additional safety measures or, or additional kind of risk mitigation from the things that you have mentioned, like hurricanes, like seismic activity? Like, are you able to use this as, as a time to, to bolster the structure uh, to prevent future damage? Yeah, I think so. You know, I think that uh, part of, you know, part of our goal certainly is, hey, let's not just fix this. Let's make sure that we come up with whatever measures are necessary to prevent this type of failure or any other similar failure in the future. And there's a lot of different things being discussed that can be done really to increase the structural robustness uh, of the facility. Um, but again, a lot of it's gonna depend, in, be on, depend on the forensics, right? And what that tells us, what tells us why it failed. And, uh, and at that point we understand the scope, but yeah, it is, it is our, our intention to make sure that, that we uh, increase the robustness and the resiliency of the facility as much as we possibly can. Now, the entire observatory is not shut down, right? There are other parts of the observatory that, that continue to operate. Um, can you kind of explain some of the observations that Arecibo is still able to continue to make during this process. Sure. Um, so, you know, Arecibo is, is certainly, you know, our, our primary uh, piece of equipment, right? Our primary tool is, is the radio telescope itself, right? The 305 meter diameter dish. Um, and, and I agree that's our primary instrument, but we do have a lot of ancillary instrumentation uh, scattered across the site and, and across Puerto Rico. Um, and those have not stopped working, right? So we do have uh, LIDARs that, that are in our optical lab, um, which continue to operate. They can be used for meteor composition. They can be used uh, for a lot of different things. And, and so those projects continue to go. Uh, all of our, what we call our passive optics continue to operate. We have photometers on site, we have rheometers on site. So all of those continue to operate without any problem. Um, similarly, we have a remote observing facility in, in the island of Culebra uh, to the east of Puerto Rico. Um, and that, that facility was built uh, or was installed there, you know, I want to say over, over 10 years ago now, because it, it just gives you another vantage point, right? Um, and so we also have photometers there and some other uh, optical, I'm sorry, passive radio equipment there um, that operates 24-7. And so you know, for, from our perspective, the science doesn't stop. And so those projects continue to move forward. We have a lot of other projects that, uh, that also, uh, 
you know, require a lot of attention that we're really working with. Um, you know, one of those is, is a collaboration that we have with Microsoft uh, to transfer all of our historical data, the Recibo historical data into the Microsoft Azure cloud. And, and we want to do that for a variety of reasons. Um, one of those is first to make sure that, that it is accessible to everybody across the world, around the world. Uh, you know, it's a lot easier to have access stuff in the cloud than to have to ship individual, you know, uh, disks with data uh, to different folks, which is how we have been doing it traditionally. And um, so that's one of the things. And then the other aspect of it is, um, you know, being able to reevaluate that data. You know, now that we have that data in the cloud, can we implement machine learning techniques, right? And artificial intelligence techniques to revisit some of that data and search it for, you know, newly discovered phenomena. And, and so for example, you have the fast radio burst, right? It's, uh, it's a hot topic of research for us in the radio astronomy side of the house. And um, there is nothing that says that, that we haven't seen that, that feature um, in the past, uh, but unfortunately, we just didn't know it existed until, you know, very few years ago. So could we revisit some of the Arecibo data and look for exoplanets and look for FRBs uh, and not do it in a way that it's ridiculously time consuming, right? Do it in a way we can automate it. So that's another really interesting project that we're working with um, that, that, uh, that, you know, has the potential for, for a lot of discoveries without us having to have the telescope online. Mm -hmm. You mentioned it, it's a matter of when, not a matter of if the main radio dish comes back online, but I've got to imagine there is a backlog of astronomers who want to get their hands on that dish. How do you manage the scientists who want access to it when it's back online? Is, is, are there priority observations? Um, what's the process going to be like when it does come back? Sure. So, uh, you know, we have kind of the way that we operate. Um, we have a call for proposals. We do that twice a year. Um, and we have, you know, scientists all around the world that submit their proposals. They are evaluated by both an external panel and an internal group. Um, and then we, we provide that time, right? And we say, hey, you know, based on your proposal, you know, you were rated high, let's put it that way. And, and you get, you know, all of your time or 90% of your time, whatever that may be. Um, so we already had, you know, a pretty full schedule this this uh, for this particular semester that ends in December. Um, and so what we would do is, you know, we definitely want to make sure that we give those hours to the folks that had it this semester, find a way to get it to them next as soon as we're online, which we're hoping to be next semester. So that's how we're handling the priorities. Um, you know, if you already had time, then we're, you know, we, we want to honor that and we're going to keep that time on the schedule and just restore it as soon as we possibly can. And finally, Francisco, um, will this have a long-term impact on astronomy or are you hoping that this will just be a, a, a tiny little blip in the history of Arecibo? You know, I think that, I think long-term is going to be a tiny blip. You know, we've, we've run into this sort of things in the past. Um, you know, same way that Maria was significant, but we were able to overcome it. I think we're going to overcome this as well. Um, and, you know, my hope is that at the end of the day, we're going to have a much more robust system, uh, that we're going to be able to rely upon. And we have a lot of exciting equipment that's on the way that I know we are eager to get installed as well. So, you know, there's, there's a lot going on for us, I think on the science side of the house and, uh, 
you know, we'll find a way to, to repair this telescope and get us back online as soon as possible. We've been speaking with Francisco Cordova. He's the director of the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico. Francisco, thanks for speaking with us. No problem. Thank you. Still to come, tracking near-Earth asteroids and reigning in the buzz on social media. Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. An asteroid is heading our way, right on Election Day. Does this cosmic flyby pose any risk to us here on Earth? Well, to help answer that question, we're joined by our panel of expert scientists, UCF's Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. Addie Dove starts this week's conversation off reassuring us we're not in any danger. Not from that asteroid or most others that we've seen recently either. Tell me a little bit about this asteroid. Um, why should I not be worried about it? It's adorably small. Uh, <laughs> is the main reason. Um, it's only uh, two or three meters across, so it's sort of SUV-sized object, uh, similar to one that uh, recently had a close pass over the Indian Ocean a few weeks ago. So it's unlikely to hit the Earth, but even if it did, it would be an airburst event that would be unlikely to have any direct impacts on the ground. Airburst events. What does that mean? That sounds cool. Yeah. So those are like the the Chelyabinsk uh, event that happened uh, in Russia a few years ago. So where there's this really big, um, most of the uh, asteroid is going to disintegrate in the atmosphere, um, but it creates a really big pressure event. That's the burst part. Uh, it creates a lot of pressure that can go outward, but it's not going to create any big damage, damaging giant impact on the surface. Yeah, it turns out that this 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 really surprised me when I first learned about this many years ago. That things of that size actually hit the Earth quite often, like hundreds of times per year. Uh, you know, impacts of that size objects are not uncommon at all. Uh, this one, you know, what's what is uncommon is is identifying objects that small and watching them and knowing that they're going to hit. Most of the time, they just hit and. Uh, blow up in the upper atmosphere and we don't really worry about it. And it's a really promising development that now we are seeing more of these really tiny things uh, before they hit. Not so much to give us a warning about these particular objects, but because we do want to make sure that we're seeing all of the ones that really would be dangerous. And uh, if you're seeing all the ones that really would be dangerous, you should be catching a significant fraction of the smaller ones, which are harder to see, but much more numerous. So it's, you know, it's a good sign that we have ramped up our ability to detect these uh, near-Earth asteroids. How does that process work? How are astronomers able to detect these near-Earth asteroids? So these days we have a lot of um, relatively small telescopes that are just scanning the skies all the time. So they're called surveys, uh, where they're just looking out um, and looking for these small objects. And, and like Josh mentioned, they're very hard to see because they're so small, right? So we see things that reflect light back to us and asteroids are dark, so they don't reflect very much light to start with. And then if they're very, very small, they only reflect a tiny bit of light. Um, so it, it takes long, just like staring at the sky for a long time, basically, and looking for little things to move um, that we're detecting a lot of these really small things. And then there are follow-up observations that are done if we're able to, to like see a little bit more about them for their orbits. But for something like this, we maybe only see it once and then it's sort of out of our, our realm of detection. Is, is there interest from the scientific community when something like this one, even even as small as it is, comes close to us? I mean, will, will folks be pointing telescopes at it and hoping to find out where it came from, what it's made of, et cetera, et cetera? I think so. I mean, the 
these small asteroids are likely fragments of larger asteroids. And it's interesting to sort of trace that back. There's a lot of um, sort of family tree research that goes on in, in asteroid research of identifying the fragments and how they're related to some previous uh, progenitor object. And that can be done by analyzing the orbits of the objects and following those sort of back in time, but also by looking at the composition of them. And then, of course, when these things do hit the Earth, pieces of them end up on the ground, which we recover as meteorites, which we can then study in the lab. So we get these free samples of the leftover building blocks from the start of the solar system. And so being able to see them in space, to know what they look like in space, to have a reference point with what we see in the lab is very important. This particular story showed up um, on my Facebook feed and on Twitter with some <laughs> sensational headlines about how, you know, we're getting this, you know, this asteroid's going to strike us right before Election Day. You know, as scientists know what's actually going on, I mean, what's it like seeing this <laughs> and, and dealing with an event like this becoming so so sensationalized and, and overhyped? Um, online yeah i mean on on the one hand it's it's i like headlines about space things because it gets people thinking about them and and right an asteroid impact is something we should be concerned about sort of long term for our uh, survival as a species um but headlines like this that sort of uh like you said sensationalize it and and maybe scare people unnecessarily are pretty frustrating um especially when uh if it often the headline says something like that but then in the article you see like oh it's going to pass by right um i think i think one thing that would be cool if there were better graphics to sort of like the relative scales of how these things pass by and how close they're getting to earth um compared to other things and like how often that happens so people would be maybe maybe although maybe if people knew how often it happens they'd be more concerned i don't know there's potentially the sort of, you know, the boy who cried wolf phenomenon too with these sorts of things. And I always cringe when I see sensationalist uh, astronomy headlines, whether it's about a potential impact or anything else, like there's going to be some amazing event or Mars is going to be so bright and people get their, you know, their imagination gets caught and they're like, oh my gosh, that's really crazy. And they go outside and they look at them like, what? I don't get it. What's the big deal? So uh, it's, that's unfortunate. I think that uh, sometimes some of these things aren't put just as Addie was saying, you need the appropriate context. And if you mm -hmm. provide that context, then it's uh, it's much easier to understand what to expect. I mean, where can people go um, to kind of get some, you know, reliable in context information about things like this that are that are happening? Where, where's your go to places? There's a great astronomy podcast. Walk about the galaxy. <laughs> Honestly, though, this this the, what you bring up here is a really important point. You know, one thing that I think scientists don't generally do well is communicate with the public about you know what's cool and what's not, and what's real and what's not. And this is you know this is a giant problem. You know, big giant societal problem that is partly on the shoulders of scientists. We 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 love to write all these. Uh, great academic papers and publish them in these peer-reviewed journals, but they're totally unreadable, of course, for the general public. Translating that to regular English or any language and then sending it out to the public is something that we don't do a great job of. Sometimes the big societies like the American Physical Society, the American Astronomical Society, the American Medical Association, they put out statements about things like uh, this and, uh, and those are great. But in general, there is no great clearinghouse or something like that for awesome science information. Let's get to work on that. That was UCF scientists and hosts of the podcast, Walk About the Galaxy, Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. 
You can get their podcast, Walk About the Galaxy, wherever you get this show, or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. The show's intern is Nelly Ontivero. Our director of content is Stevie Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.